In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful. And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum wa farajana bihim. So, very quickly, brothers, I think uh, this is first of all the first time that uh, we go into um, this type of you know technology. So, first of all, be patient and bear with us uh, if there are issues with that. And inshallah, we learn from it and uh, we get uh, really good at uh, using all of this. Um, and secondly, I think the um, where we had reached in terms of our uh, the succession of our points that we had made until now, uh, the past two lessons I think were quite heavy. They quite loaded with uh, information, uh, and they were both of them very long. Uh, so the previous lesson uh, that we had had to do with uh, the uh, importance of understanding the prophecies that were related to the Holy Prophet. Uh, and we didn't go into too much detail, but we did compare what we find uh, in the Quran versus what we find in other uh, scriptures. And we concentrated on the Old Testament and the New Testament with regards to the figure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the prophets that we find in there. And of course, all of this is part of a bigger narrative that we have presented until now, which has to do with understanding uh, the prophethood of our Prophet. So we are at a point in the system of belief that we are building. So we clearly established the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We clearly established our clear answers to what we call materialism or materialist thought. We talked about the beginning of the universe or existence, beginning of life and the beginning of human beings and how are they different from everything else. And we talked about the problem of evil in the world and divine justice because that's one of the most difficult, complicated uh, topics that we find related to the existence of God and theology in general. Uh, so we talked about all of that and then we started talking about the notion of prophethood in the general sense. sense. That's why we refer to it as al-nubu'a uh, al So these are the matters, the articles, the items that relate to all prophets. So we talked about what it means for what is a prophet and why are they necessary and what is religion or revelation and why do we need it? Uh, and in what sense are prophets infallible? And how do we make sure that when someone claims that they are a prophet, they are actually a prophet like they claim to be? And so we talked about what is mu'jizah, we talked about asma, infallibility, and so on and so forth. Now that we finished all of this, we said now we are going to specifically look at the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad because we do not have time. This is an introductory level class. We don't have time and we don't want to spend too much time going through the lives of every Prophet. Inshallah, we'll come back to those once the series is done. But at least for Prophet Muhammad, let's apply the things that we talked about and we established for Prophets. Let's apply them to Prophet Muhammad to see in what sense he's a Prophet, what is his miracle, and what are some specific things related to him. So we established his Prophethood until now, and we started talking about, uh, we talked about him, we talked about his time, we talked about other scriptures. Now we want to talk about his main miracle. His main miracle being the Holy Qur'an. 
And as we said, the Holy Prophet does have other miracles, but let's put all of those aside. We concentrate on the Qur'an as the main miracle of the Holy Prophet. So, what we want to understand, and this is what we did in the past uh, last time that we met. Unfortunately, many of you were absent at that time, so we're going to recap that very quickly because I think it was very dense, and I have some notes for you so you can follow along. What we tried to do is to explain the three big ways in which the Holy Qur'an is considered to be a miracle. Once we finish this topic, just so that you know where we're going, we want to establish the authenticity of the Qur'an. We want to show in what sense is this book that we call the Qur'an today, in what sense is it actually the same book that was revealed to the Holy Prophet And by then we will know, okay, so if it is the same book that he called the Qur'an, that the people of his time saw and were exposed to, and based on that book they established his prophethood, and one, so that's one. And two, that that book is actually miraculous in nature. So that is the sign, that is the miracle, that is the proof that he is actually a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, among others, but we want to concentrate on that proof. Then we will know for sure that his revelation, that his religion, that his set of teachings do come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there is nothing else that competes with them in today's world, as we saw by looking at other scriptures. So we are left today, and that's why we tried to make this point clear again and again. We are left today with only one alternative, one option. If you live in today's world, you are either someone who is objectively really trying to find the truth about whether there is a divine teaching that has been communicated to humanity or not. And if there is, and we've eliminated all the other options, the only one worth looking into, left to look into, is this revelation, is this religion, and this set of teachings that this man called Muhammad came up with, came uh, and presented and uh, communicated to humanity at his time, and which he uh, comprised in this book, which he included in this book that we call the Qur'an. So we want to look at the Qur'an from two angles. We want to look at it, as we said, in what sense is the Qur'an miraculous when we keep saying that the Qur'an is a miracle of the Holy Prophet? What do we mean? In what sense is it miraculous? And two, and so how does it establish the prophethood of the Holy Prophet? And two, uh, is this actually the same Qur'an? So is it authentic? Is the authenticity of the Qur'an, is it clearly established or not? Are there question marks about whether this is the same book that he was presenting to the world or not? Okay, so this is what we've been trying to do. So this is kind of going to be, and especially because we've been off for two weeks, this is going to be a recap, and because a lot of you were missing in the last time that we presented this topic, this is going to be a recap of what we presented in the last time when we talked about the uh, topic of uh, the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran. Okay? So, we said that there are three main ways in which the Holy Quran is a miracle, and those are the three main ways we're going to concentrate on, and there are others, and we'll mention them. The main way the Holy Qur'an is a miracle. And what has traditionally been the main way that the Qur'an is considered a miracle is through its eloquence and its rhetoric. It's the language and the manner in which it is used in the Holy Qur'an. So keep that in mind. That's one. Two, the fact that the Holy Prophet was never known to be someone who had read or written anything before the Holy Qur'an is a source of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. 
So we're going to come back to that as well. And finally, the fact that there is an incredible internal harmony within the Quran in the sense that you never find any contradictions. And we're going to come back to each one of these points uh, as we go through the uh, lecture. So as we said, this is kind of re a recap. We're definitely not going to repeat every point. We're going quickly. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to use up the time that we have. I'm aiming to be done by 7.20 or a little bit uh, before if possible. And then we'll probably uh, uh, add another quick session in case there are questions, concerns. And there are a few things I wanted to add, especially since we're uh, in the holy month of Shaban and getting ready for the month of Ramadan. So we'll talk about those when, when we get there, inshallah. So if uh, the session cuts, as we indicated, I'll be sending another link uh, in the same manner on the WhatsApp group. Please uh, click on it and we'll go in the second session if we run out of time. The first point before getting into the miraculous nature of the Quran that we wanted to keep in mind is that one, the Holy Quran came with its own challenge. And we talked about this challenge function when we talked about miracles of the prophets. We said that miracles are always included within them they always contain a challenge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that they cannot be replicated. They cannot be duplicated. No one can repeat what is being done through a miracle. If it's truly a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to show his might, to show his knowledge, to show, that, to show that this person who is claiming to be a prophet of Allah is actually a prophet of Allah, then no one can ever come back and duplicate, replicate that miracle. Otherwise, it's not a miracle, okay? So, the Qur'an itself is no different than that. The Qur'an contains its own challenge within itself, and the first thing that it does is to challenge those to whom it is being revealed in their domain, in their field, which is eloquence, which is the use of language, and tells them, if you do not think that this is really from God, then how about you try to duplicate it? How about you try to come up with something similar to it? Okay? So that's one. And if you cannot, and the Qur'an talks about this, and inshallah we'll read the verses, and if you cannot meet that challenge, if you cannot come up with uh, a Qur'an like it, then you have to accept the conclusion that this must be from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by your own contention, and therefore accept the call of this man, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, as being a divine prophet sent from Allah to, with a set of guiding principles. And, if we keep in mind what we know today, the challenge still stands. So, as the Qur'an challenged the people who lived at the time of the Holy Prophet uh, by telling them, if you can replicate it, this challenge is eternal. It is for all humanity. Anyone can today, if they think they can, replicate some of the criteria, some of the dimensions that we're going to address in the next uh, arguments, uh, in the next uh, few minutes about the Holy Qur'an. If they can repeat those outside of the Qur'an, then they will have met a portion of the challenge, but the challenge, as we know, has been standing for the last 14 centuries since the time of the revelation of the Qur'an. And so if we go through the verses of the Qur'an, in one verse, it clearly says, say, should all human beings and jinn rally together to bring the like of this Qur'an, they will not bring the like of it, even if they assisted one another. And so this is the entire Qur'an. The challenge here is if the jinn, if all the jinn, this other species, and all of humankind were to work together, 
So two species working generation after generation forever to try to replicate this Qur'an, they would not ever be able to. This is a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obviously an open challenge that still stands. So anyone can and should try to break this challenge and, and uh, meet it if they can. Otherwise, they have to accept the conclusion. The second verse, do they say he has fabricated it? Say then, bring 10 surahs like it, fabricated, as you claim, and invoke whomever you can besides Allah, should you be truthful. Okay, so here the challenge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala went lower. At the beginning, the challenge was try to replicate this entire Quran. Here we see the challenge is try to replicate 10 surah of the Quran, 10 chapters of the Quran. Then the next level, the Quran says, do they, uh, do they say he has fabricated it? Say then, bring a surah like it, one single surah, and invoke whomever you can besides Allah, should you be truthful. And as we said, a surah can be something as simple as Surah Al-Asr or Surah Al-Kawthar, which are basically one line long made up of three verses. And so the Quran then gives you the alternative. And it says, if you are in doubt concerning that, what we have sent down to our servant, the Holy Prophet, then bring a surah like it and invoke your helpers besides Allah, should you be truthful. And if you do not, and you will not, then beware the fire whose fuel will be humans and stones prepared for the disbelievers. So this is the only outcome and the Quran's logic, as usual, is uh, very strong and very meticulous in this way. What is your argument to this? Either you can replicate it because it's a man-made, human-made uh, you know, thing put together by a human being, and therefore you as the chief of the eloquent people of the world should be able to replicate it, or then you must accept that their origin of this Qur'an is not human. So if we go back to the history, we know from history that from the time of the life of the Holy Prophet and onwards, his enemies uh, were many, many uh, very powerful people who did everything they could. They tried to kill him, assassinate him, uh, seduce him, uh, try to torture the people who were trying to associate with him. They really did not stop at anything to try to uh, make this mission of his, this new religion of his, uh, seize or be diluted or disappear, basically. And as we said, a lot of these people, they were personally, they were losing. They had things to gain and things to lose by making sure that this religion does not continue. Okay, so this continued and began from the mission of the Holy Prophet onwards. A lot of these people, when they did this, this is the early uh, history of Islam, as we said, they had the might and they had the power and they had the wealth and they had the network to put everything that is possibly, they can possibly put together to counter the claims of the Holy Prophet and they did. And this is the, if you study this, especially the early history of Islam and the Mecca period, uh, but the Medina period is no less if you look at the battles against the Holy Prophet, the, uh, a number of times they tried to assassinate him and he was rescued by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again and again. And this today continues. There are many, many organizations and many people dedicated to showing that this religion is not a true religion. It's not divine. That it doesn't have uh, as, as its source Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they continue to slander and they continue to attack the Holy Prophet. And what better way than to attack the Quran itself? And so the challenge was always, uh, always had people working to try to show that they can actually meet it and bring down the Quran and bring down the revelation of the Holy Prophet. 
It's not like it's something that was put aside and people have ignored it. This has been a live challenge with people showing real true enmity against it from the day it began 14 centuries ago until now. And if we want to go back to the manner in which we explained what a miracle is, we said that a miracle is something that breaks away with the natural order of things, something that you cannot repeat or duplicate, and it's presented with a claim from the person presenting it that this is actually the proof that they are sent from God and therefore that they are a prophet. So when we come back to apply those notions to the Qur'an, we see that, as we are going to see, it does break away with the natural order of things, it is impossible to imitate, and it was presented, as we just read from the verses, it is presented as a proof of the prophethood of the Holy Prophet And the last point we mentioned here is that if we look at the, 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 the miracle of our Holy Prophet, we really need to consider ourselves very lucky that we have access to his miracle. We are not like in the same situation, in the same state as the followers of other prophets because they do not, they do not have any access to the miracles of their prophets. You have to go based on accounts of history, based on reports. You have to imagine what happened. You have to imagine how, what was miraculous or how the miracle happened. In the case of the Qur'an, if you look at these verses, the Qur'an is presenting itself to the world as a living miracle. But it also says it needs to be studied. It needs to be looked at carefully. You can't just look at the Qur'an superficially and say this is a miracle Otherwise, you're not going to appreciate the miraculous nature of the Qur'an in that manner. Now, as we said, the first aspect of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an is the eloquence and the use of rhetoric in the Qur'an. We were very clear in that historically this has always been presented as the main miraculous aspect of the Qur'an. The Qur'an has many miraculous aspects. The main one, traditionally, classically, historically, when you ask what is miraculous about the Qur'an, the main one that is cited, or the first one that people awoke into, was the eloquence and the rhetoric and their use in the Holy Qur'an. So the manner in which the Qur'an structures itself, the rhythm that it has, the, cho the choice of words, the choice of terminology, the new terminology that it brings, its capacity to create, stir up the imagination of the person who understands what it's saying. Its ability, as they call it, pragmatics, the ability to stir an emotion and to make you want to do things. Okay, the way it uses repetitions, the way it uses metaphors. And people have been studying this aspect, these aspects of the Quran from the moment they have been revealed and until now. There are countless studies appearing every day that attack or that try to deal with one or two or three of these uh, aspects that you see in front of you on the slide right now. And they all have to do with the use, the manner in which the Holy Quran uses language. Now, to fully appreciate this, the this aspect of the miraculous nature of the Quran, one would have to have a very, very strong, masterful command of the, in, of the Arabic language. And if you look back in history, there is clearly, and there's a consensus around this, that this is in decline. If you look at the time when there was the masterful uh, understanding and use of 
the Arabic language was at its peak, that was during the time of the Holy Prophet. And since then, it has been in decline. No one claims to be as eloquent or to have as much masterful use of the Arabic language as, let's say, the people who lived at the time of the Holy Prophet. No one has ever claimed that. People aspire to, people wanted to, but everybody knows that the Arabic language in general has been in decline and their ability, intuitive ability to understand the language and to manipulate it and to use it has been in decline since the time of the Holy Prophet. And there are many, many reasons and factors for this. We're not going to get into that right now. The long story short is those who have the greatest command of the Arabic language lived at the time of the Holy Prophet and intuitively understood the eloquence and the rhetoric of the Qur'an as it was being revealed to them. Today, there are people who are very masterful at the use of Arabic. To the extent that they understand Arabic, they can appreciate this aspect of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. So can we? Yes, we can. But we have to spend a lot of time perfecting our understanding of the Arabic language and how it is used to the point where it becomes intuitive. It becomes uh, artistic. It becomes ingrained in the way in which we see the world. You, of course, can make it into uh, something a lot more logical and structured. It has to begin there. But at some point, these people at the time of the Prophet, they did not have the grammar books thick like this to understand their language. It was something that they perceived, they felt, they experienced intuitively, naturally. And the manner in which the Holy Qur'an the voice of the Qur'an and the manner in which it uses language was agreed upon by those people living at the time of the Holy Prophet that this is beyond human capability. And this is not the people who became the followers of the Prophet who said this. These were the enemies of the Prophet. These were the people who wanted to do anything and everything to get rid of the Holy Prophet and to get rid of his Qur'an. And at the end, they were the ones telling themselves and telling the others that this is beyond human capability. And there is no way for a human being to be able to use language in this way and to create this type of uh, response in other human beings. So this is at the time of the Holy Prophet himself. And we said that in a general matter of speaking, we said there's a narration from uh, Imam al-Hadi salam, uh, a scholar by the name of Ibn Sikid came to him and asked him and we've gone over this one uh, multiple times when he was asked how come is it that the Holy Prophet's miracle was the Quran whereas Prophet Musa salam, was magic and Prophet Isa salam, was for instance raising the dead and the Imam explained that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always explains and establishes his authority and his proof to the people using what is considered the highest form of expertise and human knowledge and human art or craft of their time. So at the time of the Holy Prophet, the highest level, the highest understanding and masterfulness in the world was the use of language by the Arabs at that time of the Holy Prophet. So the miracle that came to them came in the form of a linguistic miracle, which is the Holy Quran. And we're going to touch on the other miracles. Okay, so uh, the other aspects of the miracle, miraculousness of the Quran. The same thing with Prophet Musa, for instance, at his time, those who were considered uh, 
the most masterful people of that world and the biggest experts of that world were people who dealt in magic. The craft of magic had become what is considered requiring the highest level of expertise and knowledge and therefore also status and power and wealth and so on and so forth. So if you're able to determine to those people, to establish to those people that you're really a prophet of God, then imagine the influence that you can have on the rest of society. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always goes to that type of miracle. Now, in addition to that, a linguistic miracle, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but a linguistic miracle is not a material one. It's going to be a rational one. It means that it's going to evolve with the rest of the evolution of humanity. As humanity matures, as humanity has to deal with new things, because the miracle with which they are presented is going to be a rational miracle requiring analysis because it's language, it's a completely different type of miracle than something material, like a cane that becomes a serpent, that becomes a snake, right? So there's no evolution there. Humanity, if it evolves, there's nothing to be gained from analyzing a cane that becomes a serpent. But there's a lot to be gained by analyzing the contents of the Qur'an, which at first may look like it's linguistic, as we just said, but in reality, it's a lot more. Because language contains the thought of humanity, and this is what we're going to see in the second aspect of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. So to finish this, some of the people, and we told those stories, so we don't want to go back and dwell on them, we told the story of Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira al-Makhzumi, of Utba ibn Rabi'ah, Al-Tufayl ibn Amr. These are all people who were living at the time of the Holy Prophet, considered the top, most respected, eloquent people of their times. And they all recognized the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. And they went back and said, say something else, say he's a sorcerer, in the case of Al-Walid and Utba. Okay? As for Al-Tufayl, he actually became uh, a Muslim and he went back and he made all of his uh, tribe become Muslims as a result of having heard a few verses of the Qur'an. And then there are people, let's say, if you fast forward to 100, 150 years later, the time of Imam Sadiq there were people, and we have their names here, uh, Ibn Abil Awja, Ibn Al-Muqaffa, and Abdul Malik Al-Basri. These people were considered the top, most eloquent people of their time, and they were Zanadiqa, they were heretics, they were atheists. They got together and they said, we will work for one year non-stop to try to come up with a few verses to meet the challenge of the Qur'an that it can be replicated. And so they went and when they came back and they met, none of them had anything to present to the others. And this is when Imam al-Sadiq passed by them. They were sitting inside the Kaaba, inside the, the, the holy shrine uh, near the Kaaba. And he repeated the verse uh, from Surah Al-Isra that we recited that if humankind and the jinn were to work together to try to uh, duplicate or replicate the Quran, they would not be able to do so. So, uh, and here we had the, the verses that we uh, we went through for uh, the, the Holy Prophet recited, which made these people believers. And as we said, we're not going to repeat all of that. The second aspect of the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran is the illiteracy of the Holy Prophet. Now, we were very clear from the beginning. What we mean by the Holy Prophet being illiterate is simply to say that the Holy Prophet was never, ever seen to have learned how to read and write from anyone else. That's it. Does it mean that the Holy Prophet does not know how to read and write? No, we're not saying that. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to teach him, he can teach him. That he wanted to learn and Allah taught him, very possible. No issue with that. 
The main point is no human being ever taught the Holy Prophet how to read and write. And so up to the point when he became a prophet and he received the revelation according to the majority of the people at his time, he had never been seen reading a book or writing anything. And this is very important because it means that there is no way for him to have copied this from another book or to have been the one writing it. And there's a link between this and the next proof of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, which is the internal harmony of the Qur'an, from someone who has never written anything. Maybe today if you sit down and write something, and in five years you want to talk about that topic again, you can go back to your notes, and you can see what exactly did I say, okay, so I can come back and review it before I talk, so that I don't contradict myself. But the Holy Prophet never did that, okay? So let's keep that argument aside for now, the illiteracy of the Holy Prophet. The breadth and depth of the topics addressed by the Holy Quran. So the Holy Quran doesn't talk about one thing. The Holy Quran talks about many dozens upon dozens of themes of various fields of human thought that today we call academic disciplines, sciences, you know, understanding from the world to history to economics to so on and so forth. So this is the breadth with which the Quran addresses issues. Very Many issues are addressed in the Qur'an falling in a lot of very different fields and very different uh, disciplines. The depth to which the Qur'an addresses a lot of the issues, sometimes it doesn't have a lot to say about it, but the little that it says about it goes very, very far. You take a few verses of the Qur'an and you put them together and you have an entire economic theory that a lot of our scholars have worked on and they call it, you know, this is the economic theory of Islam. You take a few verses in the Qur'an, you put them together and you understand, let's say, the ethical system in Islam, or the family system in Islam, or the inheritance system as it relates to the legislative system in Islam. Okay, but where does it all come from? Can you say that someone who did not have access to, uh, you know, teams of researchers, did not have access to Google and the internet, did not even read and write? And this is where this proof, the contents of the Qur'an, is actually two proofs. One of them, one layer, layer one, is the contents of the Qur'an itself is considered miraculous. You would need teams of researchers sitting together, working together to reach those conclusions. If they are that meticulous and that detailed. One. So the content of it is, that's layer one. In itself, that's miraculous. But if... We were even we, if we were not to use that as the miraculous nature of the Quran itself, then layer two is how could someone who is illiterate, someone who does not have access to reading and writing, where would he have gotten access to this type of information? So, one, the content, and two, this type of content from this type of person. And if you go back to the verses of the Quran, the Quran makes this very clear this additional proof as an argument for the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. In one verse it says, and you did not. So the Qur'an is talking to the Holy Prophet to, so that the others hear, those who, who, who do not believe the Holy Prophet, when it says, and you did not recite any book before it, before the Qur'an, nor did you write it with your right hand. For then the impugners, those who disbelieve, would have been full of doubt. They would have maybe said, oh, he found a book, he's just repeating what he found in there, right? 
In another verse it says, Say, had Allah so wished, I would not have recited it to you, nor would he have made it known to you. And here's a punchline. I have indeed dwelled a lifetime among you before. Will you then not apply reason? He lived with them his entire life. They know the difference between his speech and the Qur'an. They know every time he speaks, oh, this is Qur'an here. No, no, this is just the Holy Prophet talking. Because the Qur'an is very distinctive. And the Holy Prophet lived with them for 40 years. Never was there any claim that he had access to anything like this, and they know him very well. And then this verse of the Qur'an is very interesting because it could be inter interpreted in two different ways. In one way it says that if you are in doubt concerning what we have sent down to our servant, then bring a surah So one way to understand it is to say, so bring a surah like the ones you find in the Qur'an. Another interpretation is to say, no, bring a surah from someone like him, as in someone like the Holy Prophet, an illiterate man living in the desert 14 centuries ago and yet talking about all of these things in this type of depth and breadth, that many disciplines and in this type of meticulous and detailed manner. Okay, and uh, I know we're going to probably be running out of time soon, so I'm going to start the third argument. If we run out of time, inshallah, I'll send the... Uh, link right away after brothers the third proof is that if you look at the manner in which the holy quran was revealed to humanity we see that the holy quran was revealed not in one shot it was revealed staggered a few verses here a little chapter there over 23 years and during those 23 years you see how the holy prophet's life was extremely eventful there was always something going on it's not like the Holy Prophet just sat home and nothing happened for 23 years and he just worked on his Qur'an. He moved. There was migration. There was corruption. There was uh, torture. There was battles. Uh, there, were, uh, there was an emigration movement that, uh, where he lost completely everything he had in Mecca and went and created a new life in Medina, for instance. If you look at the life in which he went from being someone that everybody rejected and he had a few followers to basically being the biggest, greatest leader, king of the Arab world with thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, 100,000 people showing up when he did his pilgrimage, his last pilgrimage. You see how much his life had changed during that time. And yet when you read the first and last verses of the Quran, you see that there is never any contradiction between the verses of the Quran, which is not normal. Human beings evolve. Human beings mature. It's normal that you see that someone's state of mind, maturity level, the way they interpret or understand reality changes. The Qur'an doesn't. Anywhere you take the verses of the Qur'an, it's steady, it's neutral, it's objective, and there is never ever any inconsistency within the Qur'an in that manner. Of course, in addition to that, there are no inconsistencies at the logical level in the Qur'an either in general. So never do you see a weak argument presented in the Qur'an. And the Qur'an is full of, of these arguments, and they are all of them very, very strong logically. Now, very quickly, why was this the miracle? We explained that, according to hadith of Imam al-Hadi this was the most appropriate type of miracle for that time. But the more important point, as we said, is that there is a link with the universal and eternal aspect of religion, which we'll talk about in two or three lectures. If you believe that Islam is universal and eternal, 
it's good for all of human uh, human beings, all of humanity, till the end of times, then you need something that is going to be able to meet all the needs of a human being, including the rational thinking, including the social maturity of the societies trying to implement, to apply this set of teachings into their lives. You need something that is mature enough so that no matter how much you evolve, you are still able to extract something new out of it and see that it's relevant for your life. And this is the reason why the Qur'an is an abstract and not a material uh, miracle. Okay? The second point is, we said if you want, if people say, how do I know that the Qur'an is miraculous? Either you become an expert, like in anything else, or you have to rely on experts. And that's the reason why we went to the experts of Balagha, the experts of eloquence, to say the Qur'an was a miracle because the experts are telling us, even those who are enemies of the Prophet, that it is a miracle. Now, are there any other aspects that are considered miraculous in the Holy Qur'an? Yes, a lot of them. Some of them include the depth and breadth of the, uh, and accuracy of the knowledge of the natural world. And there's a lot related to that. So basically, we were finalizing our... Uh, discussion on the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. We said, are there any other aspects in the Qur'an that are considered miraculous or not? And we said, yes, there are. Uh, and we started enumerating some of them. So in addition, so we said the Holy Qur'an is miraculous in a number of ways, right? So uh, let me go back here so that you have them. We said the Holy Qur'an is the eloquence of the Qur'an, the rhetoric, the language of the Qur'an, that is the main reason why people have traditionally, historically said the Qur'an is a miracle. Okay, that's one. Two, if you look at the fact that the Holy Prophet is an illiterate man, someone who cannot read and write or was not known to know how to read and write, then you see the type of knowledge that he was able to come up with, then that in itself becomes a second aspect of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. And thirdly, if you look at the contents of the Qur'an and you keep in mind the fact that it was revealed over 23 years and yet there are never any internal contradictions within that uh, subject matter. So imagine that you had to uh, explain something or write something or talk about something. It makes absolutely uh, no sense, uh, no meaning. I don't know what just happened here. Uh, it doesn't make any sense for someone to say, for instance, that uh, there are no changes in what you are presenting. Human beings evolve and mature and change, and that's perfectly normal. But you don't find any of that in the case of the Holy Prophet. In addition to that, just at the level of logic, there is no contradiction in the Qur'an. All the arguments presented by the Qur'an are very solid arguments from a philosophical or logical point of view. No one has ever said, oh, this argument from the Qur'an is weak. This argument from the Qur'an is contradictory or a fallacy or a sophism, as we say. So given all of that, we say that the Qur'an is miraculous. These were the three main ways of uh, talking about the miraculous nature of the Holy Qur'an. So as we said, does it mean that these are the only ways of understanding the miraculous nature of the Qur'an? Absolutely not. And so we presented those three and... Um, 
Are there others? Yes, there are others. I wanted to add one point that we didn't really dwell, uh, delve on uh, or dwell on too much here, which is as we have moved away, we said that the intuitive understanding of language has been in decline over time. But in opposition to this, the, the corollary to this, fortunately for humanity, is that while it's understanding and appreciation and mastery over language has declined, especially Arabic language, what has been on the incline, what has been progressing and getting better, is our understanding of the world, our knowledge in general as a species. Everybody knows that what we know today, 14 centuries later, about everything in the world, is a lot more. We cannot even compare the level of detail, so the breadth and the depth of anything that we know today in humanity versus what was known 14 centuries ago. So it's true that the Qur'an has a language, and it's true that we may not any longer have the same capacity as the followers of the Prophet or those who were living at the time of the Prophet did when he lived 14 centuries ago. It's true that we've lost that ability. But the other ability, which is appreciating the contents of the Qur'an, the knowledge perspective, the contents of the Qur'an, that one has been on the incline. That is a lot stronger and a lot better today than it used to be 14 centuries ago. So we are in a much better position today to appreciate all these other aspects of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an than they were at that time, and we'll see a few examples of that now. Okay, so these were including at the end. We're not adding them in the three main aspects because these are still valid. Okay, but I don't want to get into all the details why we're not considering them. The main points about the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. Okay, inshallah we'll keep that till next time or maybe you'll ask about them in the Q&A. So, very quickly, a few examples. The prophecies in the Qur'an. The first is... And these are three. There are a few dozens in there. But let's say one of them is the challenge of its duplication. The Qur'an openly said that no one is ever going to be able to duplicate this Qur'an or not even ten of its chapters or a single one of its chapters. Well, this, is, this can be considered, yes, it's a challenge, but it's also a prophecy. Because the Qur'an said, and you will not, as we read in Surah Al-Baqarah. So if you... Uh, you have to go and try to, if you claim that this is a fabrication, then why don't you go and try to fabricate one yourself, just like you claim? And if you do not, and you will not, as the Qur'an says. So this is a prophecy. The Qur'an is saying, no matter how advanced humanity is ever going to get, it will not be able to replicate the contents of the Holy Qur'an. That's one. Two, Abu Lahab. So if you read Surah Al-Masad, Surah Tabbat Yada Abi Lahab in Watab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, may the curse, may Abu Lahab be damned and cursed himself and his hand and his wife for what they were doing to the Holy Prophet. They would take the firewood and the filth and they go and put it in his way and, you know, harm him. So this was very, very early in the prophetic mission. All Abu Lahab had to do to show that the Quran is not a true divine book, all he had to do was to enter into Islam. If he enters into Islam, then the Qur'an would have cursed and damned someone who is a Muslim. 
even if he fakes it, all he had to do was enter into Islam, and then this prophecy, which is the eternal damnation of Abu Lahab, would have been falsified. He would have shown that the Quran is not truthful and that he is going to be damned and he's going to hell. No, he's going to enter heaven like all the other Muslims because he entered into Islam. But the Quran knew, and this is a prophecy, that he is never going to accept Islam. Even though it would play in his favor and against the Holy Prophet's mission and his reputation and the reputation of his book. Another prophecy. If you look at the beginning of Surah Al-Rum, and I put the verses here from verses 1 to 6, and you can go back and read about it, and I encourage you to go and read about the history between the Persians and the Romans. So basically what happened, long story short, I don't want to spend too much time on this, long story short is that early in Islam, one day the Holy Prophet and his companions hear that the Romans have been beaten. And so the Muslims, they got sad. They got disappointed and sad. Why? The Romans by the Muslims were considered a Christian empire. They represented Christianity in the minds of Muslims. The empire or the civilization against with which they were at war at that time, the Persians, they were fire worshippers. So the Muslims found themselves, they felt that they were a lot closer to the Romans because they are Christians, because they worship God, they know the prophets, they have Mary, they have Jesus. They're a lot closer to the Christians than they are to the Persians. The Persians, Zoroastrians, and fire worshippers, and so on and so forth at that time. And so news reaches the Muslims. The Romans have been defeated. Fi al so this could be could mean a low land, it could mean a close land, or it could mean in the heart of their land. Okay, and all of them work. So they were beaten at Antioch and Anatolia. Okay, those regions were and, and considered the heart of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire is being defeated on their own turf by the Persians which is really starting to show you that maybe they are quickly on the decline. This is something unprecedented and now it's happening and so maybe that's it. It's over for the Romans. And the Persians are going to be successful and they're going to be victorious and they are going to be the ones controlling the world around the Muslims. So the Muslims were worried. So this happens early and they are still in Mecca. The Muslims hear this. So the verses of the Quran come and they tell the Muslims Yes, it's true. The Romans have been defeated in the core of their house, on their turf. And so after their defeat, they are the ones, the Romans are the ones who are going to be victorious, but in a few years. Now in Arabic, you can't translate Bilba. Bilba in Arabic could be anywhere between three and nine. It's very accurate. Between three, less than in less than ten years, it's the Romans who are going to be victorious. No one would ever imagine at that time the Arabs and the Muslims. They would never have imagined how the Romans could now go and defeat the Persians when they were just defeated on their own turf, on their own land. 
Okay, and then more. This is not the end of it. So the Quran is promising that within 10 years, the Romans are going to be victorious. And then what does it add? And on that day, the believers are going to be happy as a result of a victory from God. So if you think about it, you'd say, okay, I understand we might feel closer to the Romans than the Persians at that time. But how is that a victory from God? Well, the truth is, and so the Quran is basically saying, as that battle is going to take place and the Romans are going to be victorious over the Persians, at the same time, the Muslims are going to be happy with a victory of their own from God. And if you look at history, you see that those happened at the same time, and it was the Battle of Badr. The Battle of Badr gave a great joy and relief to the Muslims, so that was the, the Muslims are going to be happy with a victory from God, that was the Battle of Badr, which was happening at the same time as the Romans were defeating the Persians, which happened in less than 10 years. It happened about 9 years after. Okay, so this is an example of a prophecy in the Quran. There are many of them. This is one example. Okay, now examples of scientific references. And I, again, I don't want to go through all of them. We have a few examples here. Verses in the Quran, let's say they talk about embryology. What happens in the womb? How a fetus is put together and how it evolves from one stage to another. If you want to go to Surah Al-Mu'minun, chapter 23, and read those uh, three verses of the Quran, 12, 13, 14. See how it describes you know, we have created the human being from an extract of clay. Then we made him a drop of seminal fluid lodged in a secure abode. Then we created the drop of fluid as a clinging blood clot. Then we created the clinging blood clot as a fleshy tissue. Then we created the fleshy tissue as bones. Then we clothed the bones with flesh. Then we produced him as yet another creature. This is when the soul enters the body. So blessed is Allah, the best of creators. If you go into, let's say, a field like geology, and it talks about how the mountains are there to stabilize the land. And if mountains were not there, basically we would spend our entire lives on moving ground. Earthquake after earthquake. What the mountains do, as the Quran says, did we not make the earth as a wide resting place and the mountains as pegs? So imagine that you have a piece of tissue and you put nails on it. What happens? You stabilize it. And now if you study geology, you'll see how the mountains are described, if you see a drawing of the mountains, how they keep the ground uh, stable because they are there as pegs or as nails, putting everything firm and in place. Be cast firm in the earth mountains, lest it should shake with you, the Quran says. Okay? Or the manner in which the wind carries, uh, does the, the pollination uh, function. So it allows the procreation of plants, of fruits, of flowers, that's why it says, and we send the fertilizing winds and send down water from the sky, so on and so forth. Or it talks about the clouds, how they come together to become clouds that can carry the, pushed by the wind to carry the water, to become rain, and so on and so forth. Or in cosmology, and these are very famous verses, for instance, when it says, then he turned to the heavens when it was smoke. So what does that smoke mean? What is Allah subhanahu wa referring to when he says that the samawat were Adukhan, right? Or when he says, for instance, have those who disbelieve not seen that the heavens and the earth were interwoven, then we unraveled them. Okay? 
and we made from water every living thing. Will they not believe? And another verse it says, and the sky was sama abanaynaha bi'aidin. So, and the sky we built it with might, and it is we who are indeed the expanders. So, a lot of people say that this is the expansion of the universe, and so on and so forth. So, these are some examples, and then here we have a lot of testimony from people in this type of world. People who clearly say, for instance, if I can read, these are all professors who have. Uh, you know, participated in conferences about the contents of the Quran, the scientific contents of the Quran. You know, so it clearly says, like one of them says, it is clear to me that these statements must have come to Muhammad from God or Allah, as they say, because most of this knowledge was not discovered until many centuries later. This proves to me that Muhammad must have been a messenger of God or Allah. Okay, and then, you know, it continues like this for many from many other uh, of these uh, experts in their field who say it's impossible for a man who was illiterate, who lived 14 centuries ago in this barbaric land, who had no access to knowledge, who would know all of these types of uh, knowledge. So all these disciplines and to this type of scientific accuracy. It does not make sense. Okay, so this is what they're all highlighting. Now the reason why I don't want to dwell too much on the scientific aspect of the Quran is that while it is miraculous, it's always limited by our own understanding of what science is today. So we have to be very careful in making sure that we do not impose our understanding of what is and isn't true. Today we know things in science that we want to consider truth. In fact, they're not truth. This is our best understanding of what's going on in the material world. In 10 years, they might discover something that completely changes the way we understand what is gravity or completely change the way we understand matter and is it really made up of atoms or something else. Today, this is the best theories that we have. Okay, and this is as someone speaking, you know, someone who spends a lot of time understanding and researching science. There is nothing in there that will not change. It might change in the next five years and it might change in 200 years. But we cannot impose our understanding of what is science on the Holy Quran and say this is what the Quran is saying. And this is why I do not put this type of miraculous aspect of the Quran, the scientific notions that are presented in the Quran. Of course they are miraculous, but we have to be careful in the way we present them. We don't want to impose these views, these scientific theories on the Quran. And then someone comes and says, well, this theory is wrong. And now you said the Qur'an said that. You're going to say, oh no, the Qur'an doesn't say that. It says whatever new theory you're saying. This is why it becomes a relative and shaky ground. And that's why I would tell you, you know, be careful in how you use this scientific knowledge. But definitely the Qur'an is talking about very accurate, very specific, detailed things that today we would call scientific theories. There's a lot of references in the Qur'an to these. And so... You know, I would invite you to spend more time trying to understand them and think about them and all of that. So this is kind of the recap. Inshallah, we're all ready to embark on the next part of this series, which is going to address the authenticity of the Quran. We didn't want to spend too much time on this one, but I think we went very fast and we presented a lot of content in the last few times. So inshallah, this was a good recap uh, for those who were there and for those who missed it. Well, at least you're kind of up to date. And I apologize that I'm going so fast, but there was a lot to cover. And uh, maybe a couple of points. I know I have about three, four minutes left before the prayer. So if I can just, you know, this is a reminder. And a reminder for myself and a reminder for 
you, my brothers, everybody sitting here and listening to me. You know, we, the reason why we're doing this is because we're all stuck with this uh, COVID-19 coronavirus situation. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all and relieve us all of this and the entire world so that no one suffers from this and that this calamity is raised sooner rather than later. But we have to make sure that we try to seize to see this and seize this as an opportunity. There is no way that we're not noticing, many of us, we're not noticing how there are opportunities in this. There is a way for all of us to see this as an opportunity. But this could only work if, please start by organizing your time. Leverage the time that you have. I'm sure that all of us, we have found, this was time that we did not have that we've suddenly been gifted time that we did not know. And now we've been given this way. We've been given this new time. What are we doing with it? If you know that this is going to go on for another week, if it's going to go on for another two weeks, we don't know how long this is going to last. You can't just go, go on aimlessly, randomly, waiting for things to get back to normal. You know, inshallah, things go back to normal or not. We don't know. In any case, you have to see, okay, so what are the new opportunities that you did not have before? And the one that I wanted to highlight to you, and inshallah, you're all doing something about it already. But if you haven't, please do something about it. You have newfound time. What are you doing with it? Are you being more productive or not? You cannot turn this into something negative and then do nothing and feel depressed or feel lonely or bored and just do nothing or game all day or sleep all day or organize your time. And if I can add the Islamic preaching aspect to this, organize your time around prayers. Your day should start with your prayer. Wake up before the Fajr prayer or wake up with the Fajr prayer. And this is your day. If you do this, it, it means you are giving priority to prayers in your life. Prayers mean something. You have to do something to show that priorities include, your priorities in life include your prayer. Start with your morning prayer. If you pray your morning prayer, don't go back to bed. Stay up, it organizes your entire day. You just found a few more hours in the day that you did not have. Do your productive work then. So that if you want to veg and chill and do whatever else you want to do, at least you got the productive part out of the way in the morning. Okay? Do that and do not waste the entire day with sleep and boredom and loneliness and depression and whatever you may be going through right now. And of course, inshallah, if you do this, you are going to take care of yourself. You are going to sleep better. You have no choice to sleep earlier if you're going to wake up for a morning prayer. And eat well, take care of yourself, continue to exercise so that as, you know, one of our brothers has said, so that you do not look like a caveman, okay? And try to set goals.